0: You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast, and now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas.
1: That's right, you're listening to another glamorous episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host, Chad Dundas from ESPN.com, and we are emanating to you in the immediate wake of the first UFC show in some 42 days. UFC 152 went down this weekend, and I have to say, I felt like the break made things a little bit more exciting. Uh, Joining us, as always, my co-host, my broadcast partner, my life partner, really.
2: Heterosexual life partner. I I feel like that's a fine thing to say.
1: From USA Today and MMAJunkie.com, Ben Folks. Ben, how are you?
2: I'm great. I, I'm, I'm going to tell you right now, I'm a little disappointed. I thought you were going to come over to my house and watch the pay-per-view yeah. and be your usually, usually uh, you know, curmudgeonly uh, contrarian self, and instead you had to stay home and breastfeed your baby, from what I understand?
1: Yeah, I made. I made my, my mouth wrote some checks that my ass couldn't cash that <laughs> night. I know that I kind of made a big stink about inviting myself over, and then I just didn't really get off the couch in order to, uh, to make it actually up here. So, my apologies if, you know, your wife baked brownies or something. Then,
2: No, hey, uh, I mean, the weird part was, I'm going to describe it as a beautiful experience for me. Just watching a pay-per-view without you.
1: Sitting by yourself. Yeah. Down there in the basement. Just
2: so peacefully quiet and tranquil. Just you and, and the dogs. Just yeah. you and the animals down there. Just staring at the TV and, you know, it's like when you're in a really horrible relationship and then you finally break it off and you're like oh i didn't realize how great my life could be without this that's how i felt really because it seems kind i hate of, you is what i'm saying it
1: seems kind of depressing to me to think about you down there by yourself in the dark and the cold <laughs> with just the lilting tones of mike goldberg and joe rogan to keep you company
2: totally happy was ben folks on saturday night <laughs>
1: Uh full disclosure this week we almost went five rounds for this week's Come yeah. In Event podcast, but the truth is we just really haven't been training very much. Uh I know you you like to go straight from the bar stool to the uh to the cage. I'm old school. So uh if we were gonna do five rounds it might have taken a little bit more preparation. But as usual, this week's show will be in three rounds. Round number one will be armbar armbar oh nuts (laughs) john jones got himself in an unexpectedly tight scrape on saturday against vitor belfort what if anything should we all be writing in our journals about it this week round two the best supporting actors michael bisping and demetrius johnson also got wins at ufc 152 now both guys face mma's most insipid and ubiquitous question what's next and in round three Now you see them, now you don't. One of this Saturday night's planned MMA shows is still going to happen. The other one? Well, we'll talk about that and much more, including another installment of Master Tweet Theater and Are You Fucking Kidding Me? and Just Saying Stuff. But first, you know what time it is. It's listener mail time. This week's first question comes to us from Jared Gonzalez, who asks... I'm a huge MMA fan, but I have to admit, I have trouble selling the legitimacy to my peers. A guy who has defended his belt four times is really considered the greatest. A female with six fights is the greatest fighter ever. A guy with a 6-5 and five record is actually being thrown around as a contender. My peers think I'm a fucking idiot for <laughs> telling them this sport is legit, yet it's hard for me to come out sounding somewhat intelligent without being a, quote, nut hugger, end quote. Any thoughts? New friends? New
2: life? It would be helpful to know who Jared Gonzalez's peers are.
1: Yeah. You know? I, uh, is he
2: like a like a circuit court judge or something? Uh, is he a fighter pilot? We can't sit here and say with any definitive answer that Jared Gonzalez is not a fighter pilot. No, we cannot. We absolutely cannot. I guess my initial
1: reaction would be that Jared doesn't have anything to prove to these people. Yeah, fuck them, Jared.
2: Yeah. Fuck them. But, okay. Jared does make a good point... Uh, in some respects, and it's one that I think you and I have both struggled with at times. Uh, especially, you know, it's like if you're talking to your dad or something and trying to tell him about this MMA stuff. He seems to point out that you know some of the the matchmaking at times uh, is a little ridiculous. I would say the the John Jones Vitor Belfort uh, situation is a good instance of that, where if you tried to explain that to somebody from the outside and then say, "But really, the sport itself is for real, and it's awesome, and it's it's totally legit." Yeah, you, you couldn't really blame them that much for not going along with you, right?
1: Yeah, no, this recent spate of uh, cancellations and last-minute replacements and kind of like fly-by-the-seat-of-your-pants matchmaking certainly hasn't helped anyone make the case that the sport is, in fact, legitimate. But you know, And I know what you're saying. We, we've both talked about on this podcast before, like telling people what we do for a living and how, you know, I would say at least six times out of ten that people have no idea what we're talking about uh and and
2: you almost hope for that that's almost like you know (laughs) if they have no idea then they don't have a, a judgment on it necessarily but sometimes i feel like he kind of mentions that it's like we as mma fans like we have this terrible constantly drunk boyfriend and we're constantly telling our friends but you don't really know him like i do you know he's really nice when when you guys aren't around uh, and there are those times where you look at some of the stuff that, that goes on in MMA, especially I feel this way about the TRT stuff. I keep waiting for the mainstream sports world, and for them to figure out what's going on in MMA, that how rampant TRT use is and how it's sanctioned. And I keep waiting for them to all collectively turn in their chairs and look at us and say, wait a minute, you guys are letting people use performance-enhancing drugs and you know about it? What the fuck is wrong with you? There's a lot of stuff like that in MMA, so I understand where Jared's coming from, fighter pilot or not.
1: I do, too. I understand where United States Circuit Judge Jared Gonzalez is coming from here. But I guess it kind of comes back to the same sort of discussion that we were talking about on, on an earlier episode where we talked about the these quote-unquote mainstream MMA fans that we are allegedly supposed to care if they are into the sport or if like how they view the product, what they think about the broadcast, et cetera, et cetera. I sort of decided, you know, I don't really give a shit. And I think the same is probably true uh, for Jared's friends. You know, (laughs) if I'm Jared and and if my friends are into it, great. If they're not, I'm just going to do it Ben Folk style and sit around by myself in my basement with
2: just my dog and my cats. Some people can pull that off and some people can't. I'm just going to say that right now. And I mean, maybe for, you know, Jared Gonzalez, CIA agent, it doesn't go over as well as it does for me, you know, internet MMA writer. But, uh, for, I mean, for one thing, that is something Jerry Gonzalez should consider. Get scum your friends, uh, and maybe that will help you out, and then you won't feel so bad anymore. Uh, but at the same time, I think... You do have a point, and we're probably going to get into this more when we talk about the flyweights. And, for instance, the booing that went on during the flyweight fight and Dana White's response was that, Hey, who are these people? They must hate fighting. Don't ever buy another pay-per-view again if you're booing that. And you're like, well, I feel like every MMA crowd is made up of some people who just came to see somebody get knocked out. Clearly. And maybe don't even care that much about who is on the card. Yeah. Uh and those people are going to be the more vocal idiotic ones and we all tolerate them because shit you know they they paid their money too most mma fans or at least a solid half of mma fans i would say are pretty intelligent and are just not as obnoxious about it and therefore you don't hear that much from them
1: Uh, The second question this week comes from Tony, who asks, If Ronda Rousey was in the UFC and consequently had the same UFC hype machine behind her as the other champions, would she be a bigger pay-per-view draw than the current 155, 145, 135, and 125-pound champions? Kind of a strange question. I feel like, uh, in a lot of ways, Ronda Rousey already does have the the uh, same UFC hype machine behind her. I feel like even though she has never fought there, the UFC has really embraced her, um, as as sort of a promotional, uh, chip, if you will. Clearly the, the president of the company is enamored with her.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I guess you would say your, your tone in saying that, uh, you you suggest maybe it's a little creepy, the extent to which Dana White is enamored with Ronda Rousey? Those were, your, weird. Those were your words, and I, not mine. I heard your tone. People heard your tone. I saw the expression on your face. There was a, one might say, a pregnant pause before you said the word enamored there.
1: Well, look, the thing about Ronda Rousey's popularity and marketability is not necessarily her, I feel like. I feel like she, if she was a UFC fighter, might yeah, her popularity might be through the roof. I think that the real problem with promoting her is that it doesn't really seem like she has a whole heck of a lot of people to fight at this point. That is the problem. And in order to be a big, big star in the sport, you do need at least a modicum of competition, which I feel like might be the one thing at this point that's holding her back from being one of the biggest breakout uh, stars in the sport.
2: Yeah. It's also, I I go back and forth because sometimes I feel weird about it that, man, if you're going to promote her and and give her a big-time push, You got to do it now before she completely runs out of people to fight. You know, while there's still a couple people that you could throw in there and make a case for her to fight. uh, Because who knows, man? A year from now, there could be absolutely no one for her to fight.
1: The last question from Listener Mail this week comes from Rob. He says, my question is about the new season of The Ultimate Fighter. Do you think some of the blame for the lower than regular ratings for this season could be not from fan burnout, but from a lack of crazy promotion on FX? Maybe I didn't realize the amount of Spike TV that I was consuming, but since the move, I have missed the first episodes of the past two seasons. I know FX, quote, got the movies, but it doesn't <laughs> seem like they, quote, promote the MMA.
2: <laughs> well done, Rob. Yeah, well done. And, you
1: know, that's an interesting point. I kind of feel that way, too. Like I, uh, I feel like even though one of part of my job description is that I should know when the ultimate fighter starts. I feel like both of the last two seasons have kind of snuck up on me in terms of their start date. And so maybe it's because I don't watch a lot of FX, I guess, but uh, it does feel like some of the promotion has been turned down a little bit from the, from the old spike TV days.
2: You know, I think it's part of the problem is that uh, FX does have more going on than spike TV. You know, when, when I saw this question come through, I was looking up the the schedules On the internet, of what you know, a given weekday Spike TV would have, and what FX has. FX, by the way, does indeed got the movies. (laughs) I mean, there there are just mad movies jumping off on FX, and not all bad movies. Some movies I would actually watch. Spike TV, meanwhile, it's a bunch of old CSI shit, uh, and like you know, weird bullshit kind of like TV shows and reality game show kind of stuff and you know and then like they'll show what like episode 2 of Star Wars over and over again or some bullshit like that but the good thing about having Spike TV was that the USC could kind of commandeer it yeah. whenever they needed to yes. it's like oh we need to use all Saturday to do you know ultimate Roy Nelson where we show Roy Nelson's greatest fights all day just all damn day and Spike TV would be like fine go ahead All Roy Nelson all the time. FX, they actually have some shows and, as has been established, got the movies. So it's not just like you can call your shot and and take over the way you could with Spike TV. And maybe also it's the kind of thing where, since they have more going on, like Dana White was saying that the problem is for FX, they want the the UFC on Friday night. And that they consider it as a, as a, a pretty good winner. Uh, as that Friday night demo, which is not going to do terribly well among young men, typically because they leave the house. Uh, and now with this, at least gives them some reason to stay home and watch it, which you know they're not going to do just to watch, you know, Tropic Thunder again, uh, which is a hilarious movie by the way. But uh, and hey, for FX that works out. For the UFC, doesn't work out that great. Uh, and I think they're going to get beat up over the numbers here. And obviously, Dana White had a little little pushback on on that when people were asking him about it uh, after the press conference for UFC 152. Uh, But I do feel like you cannot say that burnout and uh, all that other stuff about people just being tired of the Ultimate Fighter is not part of it. Because come on, man. We've been in that house and that gym for so goddamn long. You're tired of
1: it. How many seasons are we in now? 16? 17? Something like that. Like How many shows... Television wide even do that many seasons,
2: yeah. And they've been doing this "I Love Lucy" shit run here.
1: They've been doing this same reality show with very little changes for that long. I do feel like, you know, even though to your point, it does feel like FX has a little bit more programming, the movies to spread around. At the same time, someone pointed out on Twitter this last week. I think it was John Morgan that uh, that FX wasn't showing the UFC 152 countdown, but in but they had the newest Karate Kid. With Will Smith's game. Over and over and over. Yeah, the, yeah like the, back to The back. worst one. <laughs> yeah. So it's not like they couldn't find the time. I think, more to the point, I think you were probably right when you said that the UFC just doesn't have the same leverage with FX that they had with Spike TV. Anyway, that's uh, listener mail for this week. If you have a question, comment, concern, uh, fan fiction that you want to send into the podcast, you can email us by going to our website, comaineventpodcast.com, clicking the link at the top of the page that says email the podcast and that will get it done for you. Uh, You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. We're going to go ahead and get started with round number one right now.
0: Round one.
1: Well, it was fun there for about ten seconds. I mean, seriously, did anybody know that Vitor Belfort had that armbar? lurking in his skill. I mean, besides the ghetto man Joe Charles who Vitor Belfort tapped out with an armbar in 1997, did anyone know that he had that tool?
2: Yeah, well, come on, that's not like it was a spectacular armbar or necessarily or anything that I don't think I don't I think pretty much any MMA fighter in the UFC has that armbar in his arsenal. Probably true. Probably. You know, true. it's not like like Vinny Magalhães's armbar pretty slick little maneuver there. Vitor's just pretty straight up. You leave your arm out there. I'm going to go for it. Especially if you're Vitor Belfort and you're already on your back against John Jones. I guess you might as well figure, what, hey, what's the worst that happened? He pulls out of it and then goes back to smashing your face with his elbows. You might as well give it a shot, man. But hey, I didn't think there was any way he was going to get that close on it. No, he got he got it. I mean, essentially,
1: as it turned out, it, just that he couldn't get the submission and, and John Jones managed to kind of tough it out. Um, I guess you make a good point that it wasn't necessarily the most spectacular submission attempt, but still noteworthy in that Vitor Belfort has not used it in the, in the past 15 years. Okay, here's the thing. We might as well dive like, you into think this. When, you think when Greg Jackson and John Jones were putting together the game plan, they, watch were, out for they were like, watch bar. for
2: the armbar? No, I don't think so. All right, first things first, John. Yeah, okay, yeah, fair point there. Can we talk for a second, though, about... The, the response to Vitor Belfort's performance, which, hey. Hey, I would love it if we would. I, I, I will say this right now. He did better than I expected him to. Yes. Lasted longer than I expected him to. Yes. Threatened John Jones more than I expected him to. Yes. However, and I realize, again, I'm, I'm doing the, the however turn again, but I'm, I'm going to do it anyway. However, we're all kind of treating Vitor Belfort like he finished third in the class spelling bee. And we're his parents. And we're just, hey, good job, buddy. Good job. Hey, I know that must have been really scary for you. But you went out there and you did a pretty good job, man. I mean, you didn't win, but you did really, you know, okay. You did pretty well. We didn't think you were going to do that. Well, good job, buddy. Like, come on. That, if anything, says that this fight was kind of ridiculous. That we're all just amazed that he went out there and didn't immediately lose. The fact that he did anything offensive... And that, you know, he took his beating for longer than we thought he would, and and now suddenly we're all bowled over. It's like we're in this race to hand Vitor Belfort his participant ribbon, Uh, which seems a little weird. We are not Vitor Belfort's overly supportive parents. You don't know that. (laughs) Most of us are not. That is not supposed to be what we're doing here. And the fact that we're all doing it, I think, just... Tells you how ridiculous this was as a title fight.
1: Yeah. And I guess I'm going to play into that a little bit, but to me, I agree with you that this was a completely ridiculous matchup and the ridiculousness of it. And I guess my lowered expectations for it in a way is what ultimately made it a little bit more interesting and enlightening than I anticipated that it was going to be. Because even though Belfort was only competitive for about the first 90 seconds, and really only for about those 10 seconds that he actually had the arm bar locked up. To me, like you said, that was better than what we thought was going to happen. And the really instructive thing about it was that even after that brief exchange, it allowed us to see a few different things from John Jones that we'd never seen before.
2: Okay, that's true.
1: We'd never seen him kind of gut out a submission. We'd never really seen him gut out anything, really. Right. We'd never really seen him face any significant adversity inside the cage. So I think both for him to, A, like power through the arm bar and not tap, even though he allegedly suffered some kind of damage to his arm and, and B after suffering that injury was able to then compete for three, you know, three more rounds and change. I thought, you know, we actually learned more than we thought we would out of this completely nonsensical and out of the blue matchmaking decision. The other thing that I thought this fight did that we didn't expect it to, which made it sort of interesting was that it made John Jones look a little bit vulnerable, actually Uh, I was surprised, personally, by not only that he got caught in that armbar, but then for the rest of the fight, he continued to fight as though it didn't even cross his mind that someone might submit him. Yeah. Like, it was almost as if no one told him about submissions. <laughs> it reminded me in a way, and I, I, this might be a totally weird reference, but it kind of reminded me of the way that Brock Larson used to fight in the WEC, who's this really powerful wrestler that would go out and take everybody down. But it was like he didn't even know about submissions. He would just <laughs> leave his arm out there like a piece of meat on a hook.
2: Or like Jail Sonnen used to fight in the WEC, for that matter.
1: Yeah, and and, and so it, I, I thought it was strange that that Jones seemed so content to hang out in Vitor Belfort's guard for almost the entire fight, even after he almost lost by armbar. And it took Greg
2: Jackson telling him not to do that.
1: Yeah. And then when he finally did pass the guard at the start of the fourth round to side control, he ended the fight like ten seconds later. So I don't know. To me it was it was it turned out to be at least a partially substantive and instructive fight, which was not what I anticipated from it. So I'm gonna That's a good point. I'm gonna take that away from it because as you know we're all about focusing on the positives.
2: And <laughs> this is. Everyone, you know, headed positive, into UFC 152
1: podcast. was all about focusing on the po- positives. So I'm just okay. going to go ahead and do that.
2: You, you, you make a very good point there. And, and you're right about that. It is nice to see because, and it's a weird thing with John Jones because he's been so dominant where we're just like, okay, but can he take a punch? And then he goes in there and he takes a couple punches against, you know, Leota Machida and he took a couple against Vitor. And it was like, okay, he can take a punch. But. Can he come back when things aren't going his way? You know, he gets armbar early, maybe injures his arm you know, in the, first, the opening seconds of the fight, and still manages to go a few rounds and end it and doesn't freak out or anything. So you're like, okay, he can do that too. So it was helpful in that sense. Uh, at the same time, though, I don't know if we should be... It's, it's not like a justification for the UFC's weirdo matchmaking. Uh, no, we lucked out yes that
1: we lucked out to that have we that learned that anything exchange. that it, yeah yeah
2: that it wasn't just a, a situation where he walked right across the cage, elbowed Betour Belfort in his damn skull and knocked him out immediately. I mean yeah because that's and the thing was it was so maddening for me watching it here alone without you here while you were off tenderly caressing your baby's face uh, and thinking about the joys of fatherhood and, and procreation and all that crap. Everything changes. Yeah. You're a man with responsibilities now. Uh, But watching it and hearing over and over again, you know, the, the promo materials and Rogan and Goldberg trying to sell me on how Vitor Belfort, former heavyweight champ from UFC 12. Yeah. Former light heavyweight champ from when he grazed Randy Couture's eyeball with a punch. Held yeah. the title for about eight months and never successfully de- defended it. Yeah. I feel like... I mean, that's, a, that's e- infuriating.
1: Everyone who has been around long enough to remember UFC 46, Supernatural, uh, <laughs> cringed... Who could forget? Cringed every time the UFC referred to Vidor Belfort as a former light heavyweight champion. Because he is only a former light
2: heavyweight champion in the most literal sense of the term. It, well, and it just creates this thing where you know, the UFC is going to lie to you. They are going to to take a situation and when it suits their needs, pretend it is something that it is not uh, in order to sell some shit. Yeah. And once you know that about, about the UFC, it, I go back to, you know, uh, uh, Congressman Jared Gonzalez's point about how you defend this stuff to your friends sometimes. And, you know... You don't see that with other sports. Other sports don't have the same like, you know, promotional like PT Barnum quality that fights, you know, the fight business always does where we're going to tell you something and we're going to totally bullshit you about it. Yeah. And you as a fan, if you want to have any kind of perspective on this stuff, you have to expect us to bullshit you and have your bullshit filter on high when you approach this stuff. Uh, in order to even know what's going on, yeah, you just don't you don't get that when you're watching the NFL quite as much, you know. Yeah. So it does create create a weird thing where you're like, man, I have to be a fan of this sport and also expect you to try and fool me all the time.
1: Yeah, this pay per view, or at least the lead up to this pay per view on FX, I thought more than usual was really an overt sales pitch. I feel like, yes, it's strange that the UFC uh, controls its own broadcast. It owns its own broadcast. So it's not like the NFL where you turn into Fox or, or CBS or uh, ABC, and they're showing you the game as that's owned by a different product. So the guys who are commentating and doing play-by-play uh, are somewhat impartial. Like the UFC owns the broadcast. The guys who do the broadcast work for the UFC, so you're not watching an impartial journalistic call of the action. You're watching, you know, a sales pitch, essentially. And I thought that this lead up, including that totally weird uh, echo chamber, like uh, uh, air trap interview between Joe Rogan and John Jones, which was like so bizarre that I, it was weird. I right? couldn't even watch it. Like it's the, totally weird. I watched the first segment of it. And then at the very end of the show, they, they like went back for a second segment. And I thought, oh, I, I'm just too weird. I, I turned it. I watched the last five minutes of the hype footage on the pay-per-view channel
2: before the event came
1: on because I didn't want to watch the rest of it. Well, okay, and the weird
2: thing was, too, that for one thing, I was surprised uh, that they spent so much time talking about his DUI arrest because the USC is not really known for the reasons that you just mentioned since you know they're talking about their own employees when they do these interviews. Uh, they're not really known for bringing up people's like negative issues outside the cage. That's really something. Like I wondered as I was thinking about it and watching that, if you didn't read any, any MMA websites, didn't read any MMA news, you just like you knew when a fight was coming up because you saw the poster up at, at your local sports bar and you only watched the fights, you didn't read any of the other stuff about it. Would you know that, like, TRT was a big issue in MMA? Would you know some of the stuff that's going on with some of these guys' personal lives that are negatives? Because the UFC doesn't really do that. Yeah. They don't really bring it up when guys have those problems. And you can understand why they wouldn't. And then to bring up this one, and also Joe Rogan bringing it up and being like, Man, everybody loved you before this DUI, and then they hated you. And it's like, well, no, that's not how it happened at all. Right. People hated him before the DUI, and the people who hated John Jones before the DUI— took a perverse glee in watching him get a DUI. It wasn't like there were a whole lot of John Jones fans who were like, a DUI? Well, now I cannot support you. Like, that didn't really happen. And yet, that's the the kind of version of events that, that they presented there. It was weird just to see them focusing on that so much at all and, and bringing it up. And I don't know. I, I wondered if it was more of an attempt at appearing to be, like, more... Mainstream sports, like, hey, we're going to talk about all the stuff that's going on. You know, it kind of warts and all uh, portrayal of some of our fighters. I also wondered if it was just a little bit of a screw job on John Jones uh, that, uh, hey, we're going to spend a lot of time talking about your recent screw up.
1: Well, I thought it was kind of an overt attempt to like humanize him in a way or like give him the opposite. It failed in that regard. Yeah, it totally backfired. And that kind of leads me into the probably the last point that I want to talk about about the Jones Belfort fight before we move on. And that is, as you said, the UFC seemed to really kind of go try to go overboard to establish this fact that it was the DUI that like screwed up John Jones's public image when we all know that that is not true. Yeah, I was there in
2: Toronto. 5 months before he got the DUI he was getting booed at the weigh-ins and all that stuff.
1: Yeah, and, and I feel like maybe as an offshoot of that one of the dialogues or you know one of the narratives post UFC 152 is John Jones answering his critics by beating Vitor Belfort, which we all know is only partially true. Yeah, Because the only thing John Jones did by be- beating Vitor Belfort was to deny the people who were waiting to watch him slip up that pleasure yeah but if you think that john jones can answer his critics or somehow fire back at his detractors by winning an mma fight i think you misunderstand the discussion that we've been having about john jones for months and months like people don't dislike him because of his fighting ability no one says he's a bad fighter exactly even the people who hate him
2: the most don't say that
1: yeah the people who hate him the most which i still say is weird
2: uh (laughs) totally weird
1: hate him because they think that he is an arrogant sanctimonious phony and I, but, I mean, thought they're that they're willing U-
2: to change that perspective at any time. He's, he's arrogant. And he's yes. phony. And then when he says some shit that seems a little too real, they're like, "Oh, and he's stupid. He needs to get a publicist to tell him what to say." Like he has a point on that. The people will change. The people who hate him the most, they'll change what they hate about him or what they claim to hate about him to suit the circumstances.
1: Yeah, and so I thought that that interview was probably the UFC's effort to try to humanize him in front of the audience. And I think that you're right; it backfired because. For as talented as he is and kind of like next level in the cage, he really does have this weird penchant for using the exact wrong words <laughs> to describe stuff at the exact wrong time. Because what he said about his DUI during this interview with Joe Rogan was that it, quote, set me free in yeah. a lot of ways. It will Dude, do the opposite come to most on. of us. <laughs> Yeah, the DUIs don't set you free; they put you in
2: jail, literally. <laughs> Especially if you're you're riding with a couple of people and you smash into a, a telephone pole or whatever it was. I mean, somebody gets seriously hurt there, which was totally possible, or even killed. Then it's not going to set you free at all. It will do the exact opposite. Yeah, and you're right. He does seem to have at times like an ability to, if he's trying to deflect criticism that he is arrogant or narcissistic or whatever. Uh, manages to somehow zero right in on the thing that would make him seem the most so, which is like, hey, this thing that where I screwed up was actually great for me uh, and, you know, liberating, which, yeah, not exactly what you want to say there. And you also, it makes you wonder like, wait, did he learn the right lessons from this thing that, that you would hope that he would learn? Because I agree with Dana White is always saying, hey, everybody's going to make mistakes. It's what you take from those mistakes. It's how you, how you learn from them. And I agree with Dana White on that, that we're all going to make mistakes. We're all going to you know, make a bunch of them. And it's what we learn from them. Hearing him talk about that didn't seem like he had learned the right things. So it did backfire in that sense. Yeah. And
1: winning fights and cutting weird interviews with Joe Rogan where it looks like they're not even in the same room
2: is <laughs> not what's going to rehabilitate John Jones's image. Also, and- though, it, like, as we've always said about John Jones, how he seems to be on this accelerated path. You know, the fighter's lifespan is already accelerated where and John Jones seems to be even more so. Like his rise was way quicker. Uh his kind of descent into weirdness, you know, and he shows up in this beard, with his crazy beard saying weird stuff. That happens sooner than you expect. It's like and then his, you know, self-destructive phase is probably gonna happen sooner than you expect. And then his you know, redemption is gonna happen. Like he can get all this stuff in before he's thirty-three. You know, and then, you know, 32, 33 years old, then he, he's lived the entire life cycle of a, of a successful pro athlete. Well, dear God, I hope the... Goes to play minor league baseball. <laughs> <laughs> I
1: hope back I the wrapping the Bentley around the utility pole at 5 a.m. with a couple of women who were not your girlfriend in the car was the destructive face, <laughs> right? Anyway, uh, that, that's going to do it for our discussion of uh, John Jones versus Vitor Belport from UFC 152. Uh, we'll be back with round two, but first the moment you've all been waiting for, the self-proclaimed world's greatest theatricalist, Sir Nigel Longstock joins us for another episode of Master Tweet Theater, which starts right now. And now,
0: Master Tweet Theater.
2: Now back again. With us on the co-main event podcast, your friend and ours, noted theatricalist, Sir Nigel Longstock. Sir Nigel, how are you? Good day to
0: you, sir. I am fit as a funiculum.
2: Well, there's that again. Uh, Have you been able to get those t-shirts made that have that, that catchphrase of yours on there yet? No, sir. I have not
0: found a shirtmonger who is able to spell it.
2: Well, you know, you you keep saving up for the deposit and I'm sure you'll get there. What have you got for us uh, this week on Master Tweet Theater?
0: I have a slew of tweets, each one more masterful than the last. Let us begin.
2: Red leather, yellow leather.
0: Okay. If I wanted to do a grappling match, I would go on a grappling tournament. This is MMA and UFC fans want to fight. Hashtag UFC 152.
2: I got this one. Chad, you got this one? Because I got this one.
1: Yeah,
2: yeah. That is Igor My Pokrajak. Yeah.
1: Chad? That is Igor Pokrajanov. Who
2: who somehow thinks that when you go up against a jiu-jitsu specialist and then take him down and then get submitted, you get to fucking complain about getting submitted afterwards, which is bullshit.
0: Yes, I believe if Igor Proprietus wants to avoid a grappling match, he might try K1.
2: <laughs> well, there's some more sound career advice from Sir Nigel Longstock.
0: <clears throat> Tweet the second. Deserve? I don't wait, I take. You're not the best, you're just next. At Johnny Bones. Hashtag fix your arm,
1: you're going to need it.
2: I think I got this one too. Really? Yeah.
1: I mean, that doesn't sound like Dan Henderson to me.
2: No, that—that's got to be Chael Sonnen. That's got to be the, especially because Chael Sonnen's stick is starting to wear a little thin. He's—he's he's into repeats now. The, you know, that you're not the best, you're just next. That's—that's that's some Chael Sonnen shit right there.
1: Huh. Well, I guess I'll try to make it interesting and go with a different light heavyweight contender, though Chael Sonnen is not one of those. Ah, uh, Glover Tashira, why not?
2: Yeah, sure, sure. I'm sure that, that sounds like the adept use of English that I would expect from Glover Tashira. Both fine guesses,
0: but Glover Tashira is somehow not the correct answer. It is, in fact, Chael Sonnen. Boom! I would also like to point out that his last several nexts have, in fact, turned out to be the best.
2: <laughs> Good point, Sir Nigel.
0: <clears throat> Tweet the third. Just drove by a place advertising adult swim and wine tasting. I wonder how many people will drown.
2: Huh. I don't, I don't got this one. I gotta, I gotta be honest. Um, well, I'm going to say your guy, Matt Mitrione. And I have, I have no reason for saying that at all. Just, but that it makes it impossible for you to say that on this one.
1: I was going to say my guy, Matt Mitrione. I know you were. That's why
2: I said it first.
1: All right, I'm going to go with an oldie but a goodie friend of the podcast, Danny Boy Downs.
0: My God, he's got it. It is our guy, Danny Boy Downs. God damn it. Boom. Mm -hmm. Also, drowning is not funny. Please donate to the Cletus Longstock water safety fund. (laughs) Tweet the fourth. At baby, at name omitted. Did you try any spicy food over in Mexico? Yes, vodka, wink. Spice like hell. KKK, 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 wink. What the fuck are you saying? This I am reading it literally, sir, as it is written. Jed, yeah, did you get any of that? No. <laughs> <laughs> I will read it again. At baby, at name omitted. Did you try any spicy food over in Mexico? Yes, vodka, wink, spice like hell. KKK, KK,KK, KKK, wink.
2: Wait, so this is like a conversation, or is this all supposed to be like one person answering their own question, or
0: what's unclear. going on? A,
2: a series of mysterious hieroglyphics transmitted to me by the computer. Well, in that case, uh, just based on what I know about MMA personalities on Twitter, I'm going to say Boss Rootin'. Fuck it.
1: Uh, I'm going to go with frequent tweeter and English as a second language guy. Vanderley Silva. Both fine guesses, both incorrect. It is in fact Henzo Gracie at Henzo
0: Gracie BJJ.
2: Oh, man. <laughs> Henzo Gracie's usually a little more coherent than that on his Twitter.
0: Well, what he lacks in fluency, he makes up for with enthusiasm.
2: <laughs> Indeed. Mm,
0: tweet the 5th. Hookers are kisses blown to us by
2: angels. Well, do I really need to say it? Do I need to say it, Chad?
1: I'll say it for you. The poet Philip Barone.
2: Poet Philip Baroni! Got to be! Is,
0: it is the poet Philip Baroni and his honeyed words ring down through the ages. Okay,
2: I've, I've advanced this hypothesis before, but come on, Chad. Clearly, Phil Baroni is trying to get on Master Tweet Theater at this point, right? Somebody has told him about Master Tweet Theater. He's trying to make sure he's on every single episode because that one, I mean, Jesus Christ, that is crying out for, for a Master Tweet. Is it not?
1: You know, let's focus on the positives. This was a great episode of Master Tweet Theater, I think, for the both of us. This might be the best both of us have ever done.
2: Yeah. Okay, that is true. And it only aided in part by the obvious Phil Baroni inclusion.
0: Yes, please no one tell Mrs. Baroni about Twitter.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, Sir Nigel, you've, uh, you've done it once again. We thank you for stopping by. What have you got planned for this week?
0: Well, next week I will be going into rehearsals for A Christmas Carol 2, in which Tiny Tim fights an army of genetic super soldiers in a dark Christmas future.
2: Well, at least you guys are getting a good jump on it and uh, getting started with rehearsals now, because I feel like it's going to need a lot of work.
0: Well, I play dead Scrooge, sir. I plan to redeem the entire production.
2: Well, you are the, the dead Scrooge that uh, I think we've all come to know and love but lo, these many weeks. We thank you once again. Ladies and gentlemen, this has been Master Tweet Theater. Round two. Chad, elsewhere on the UFC 152 fight card when we weren't too busy watching John Jones beat up a middleweight and almost get himself armbarred. Aged middleweight. An aged middleweight. uh, A young dinosaur, if you will. We watched the first ever UFC flyweight title fight between Demetrius Johnson and Joe Benavidez. It was pretty awesome. Yeah, it was pretty awesome, despite the boos from the crowd in the Air Canada Center, who I imagine had at that time uh, just heard some bad news about hockey or something, and that's why they are booing. Probably unrelated. Uh, but we saw that fight. We also saw Michael Bisping continue to make his case for a middleweight title shot uh, with a decision win over Brian Stan. Now, first, I'd like to talk about the flyweights, if we might, because this was the fight that was supposed to be the main event for UFC 152 before John Jones got reassigned. Uh, this was a historic event, in, in some ways because you know first ever flyweight title fight and yet there people are for a fight that I thought was pretty damn good pretty you know all over the place including a lot of technical skill a uh, little bit of everything tossed in and their people are booing right but was there a
1: lot of booing see I was I was involved was in the, I was involved in the uh, ESPN live chat during that fight which as you know anytime you have to live chat or live blog Kind of takes your attention away from what is being said right. and and things that are happening on the actual...
2: And you were too busy gently view. rocking your baby to sleep and rocking thinking about baby, how coo- you were cooing. ever going to possibly pay for college, which I assume will be like 20 million credits by the time your child is old enough.
1: Singing lullabies, just all kinds of stuff. Yeah. See, to me, the, the booing sounded a little bit, uh, you know, kind of spaced out, and I thought, uh, we could go. We could probably chalk that up to, as you said earlier, just like the thirty or forty percent of the the MMA crowd that is typically made up of assholes. Um, <laughs> if it, if it was more pervasive than that, I don't know. Maybe it really was a problem. I I thought that that was a good fight. I don't. Do you think maybe the live crowd just had a hard time sort of focusing on what was going on because those guys are so goddamn fast, not to <laughs> mention small. Yeah.
2: Well, and, and here's the thing, and I think this is a legitimate point about the dudes who are that tiny. The cage looks enormous yeah, when no, they it get in. So there's so much room to maneuver. And they covered like every square inch of it uh, with that fight, just kind of all over the place. Uh, but it was weird. I mean, I think there was enough booing that it was like several times as I was watching the fight, I was you know probably said out loud to no one in particular because you weren't there. Uh, what are they booing about? What are these people booing at? And it was like Dana White mentioned it. The, the quote from Dana White, who seemed to get really mad afterwards and could not believe that people would ever boo this. And he was saying that if you booed this, you know, hey, fuck you. You're not a UFC fan. The, the same kind of thing he likes to do. But his quote about this one, uh, about this pay-per-view, you know, it, that if you were booing that fight, quote, don't ever buy another one. I don't want your money, you're a moron, you don't like fighting, you don't appreciate great talent or heart if you didn't like that flyweight fight. First of all, I don't know if we, if he means that he does not really want your money. <laughs> I think that if Dana White wants anything from you, it is your money. Uh, so we can assume that that is hyperbole. <laughs> I know odd from Dana White that he, that he might be venturing into the, the realm of hyperbole there, but I, I think we can assume that that's what he meant there. However, there is that feeling sometimes when you're watching fights where you're just like, what the fuck did you people come here for? Yeah. What do you want? Yeah. Like I mean I know what you want. You want that are you hoping that if you boo that they'll be like, well, hey, I have awesome footwork and I'm really fucking fast, but screw it, let's just stand here and punch each other in the face like we're Don Fry and Takayama. I mean, those are the same people who are yelling out nice ass at the ring girls every time they get up, uh, because and you have about as good a chance as the ring girl being like, really? me <laughs> as you do of the the flyweights going okay you no know, you know you know what you're right all this training and shit we did forget it we'll just stand here and punch each other in the face until somebody falls down it's yeah, stupid especially surprising from
1: canada yes! tolerant canada well hey not to mention the the much ballyhooed, like you know uh
2: world's capital of MMA or whatever they call it. But I mean, I went to a fight in Brazil and as soon as the fights went to the ground, they were booing those and you're like, wait a minute, you You, guys invented this shit. (laughs) Yeah, we were kicking each other in the face over here before you guys told us about arm bars and shit, and then we all had to learn that. What the fuck?
1: (laughs) Yeah, we were all doing American Kempo before we learned about Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Yeah, weird and and a shame, because I do think that that was a good fight, and I thought, like, kind of a surprising fight from Demetrius Johnson, not necessarily in his, his, like, game plan or technique or anything, but in that he appeared, uh, like, pretty... I guess I don't know if dominant is the right word, but like pretty clear cut won the decision. Yeah, um, and against a guy who was favored to beat him. Yeah, for sure, a guy that I thought would beat him, a Me guy too. that I think everyone. I mean, I thought for a long time people have viewed this flyweight class as sort of like a coronation for Joseph Benavides right. just because he's so explosive and has so much power at that weight, and had really been so successful at one thirty five that that you thought now that he would be able to fight guys his own size that he would bring a significant advantage into the cage. Uh, didn't really turn out that way against demetrius johnson who is in terms of his elusiveness like an even smaller dominic cruz in some ways where he just looked so much faster and so much better with the footwork that uh just couldn't catch up with him with the with his power shots and And in that
2: huge cage it's like he's fighting on a football field
1: (laughs) (laughs) yeah i think actually did someone email us this week to say that they should have an adjustable cage i think someone might have I saw that somewhere. I can't remember if somebody well, I, emailed it to us or, or if it was just on Twitter. But
2: I feel fairly certain that's not going to happen. But uh, you know, Reed Kuhn, who does the, who does some, uh, I don't know if I'm pronouncing his last name right. I've I've met him, but I, I don't know if that's exactly how you say his, his last name. But he does some like statistical analysis stuff for for Sharedog sometimes, and he did a breakdown of, uh, you know, how. Lighter weight classes and the different cage sizes affect finishing rates. And and not surprisingly, I mean, there is some correlation between, you know, lighter guys, smaller guys in a, in a huger cage are less likely to, to finish each other. So it is kind of a different fight. I guess what I wonder is, after that, do you think it's now any easier to sell, a you know, the flyweights uh, to fans as like, you know, hey, flyweight championship is a main event just the same as a welterweight championship is. Because it seems like a tough sell after that, you know?
1: Yeah, I'm not sure if it really affected it one way or another. I don't think it made a dent positively for sure. No. Uh, especially since you kind of undermined it when you... Like topped it off with a with another main event. Well, see that's the
2: other thing like when Is... you came
1: in behind it and were <laughs> like, hey, you know, it would be really cool to have you guys main event this pay per view, but we're just gonna make up a totally ridiculous fight to stick on this card well, for reasons that no
2: one understands, maybe not even the guys in the fight. But then imagine, if you will, for a moment, that they hadn't done that, that it that this card had been topped off by the Demetrius Johnson Joe Benavides fight. Which was booed quite a bit, even if you didn't hear it, because you were too busy going coo-coo-coo at your infant child. Uh, imagine if that had been the end of the night. Then the the stuff afterwards would have been like, oh, the UFC, another disappointing pay per view. What are we paying for? A bunch of people complaining about that. True. Yeah. Uh, and that instead, you know, it, we end with the John Jones Vitor Belfort thing, which you know, slightly absurd on its face, but at least gives us some shit to talk about. Yeah. I I mean, I think that in that way. If anything, maybe it accidentally proved that the flyweights aren't quite ready. If only, if you know, through no fault of their own, if only because of the, the prejudices of the fans who just want to see guys, you know, get knocked silly. True. Yeah. Uh, It'll it, take it,
1: a few more fights. I mean, I think the jury's probably s- still, yeah. way too far out on that. You probably need, you know, to see some other flyweights, some more flyweight fights before we we make any kind of statement about whether or not they could, they're ready to main event. It is probably a little bit premature to put them at the top of the card just because people don't know them and they don't they haven't seen what they're capable of. Hopefully they'll establish themselves as one of the more exciting weight classes. Uh, let's let's talk a little bit about Michael Bisping before before we wrap up. Uh, I thought he looked great. Um, I was really surprised with his takedowns, that he was able to dump Brian Stan on, onto the mat as much as he was. Uh, I feel like to the extent that it's possible he did bolster his own con- You know, case as a contender a little bit. Did you see anything that makes you feel differently about what on the surface appears to be a nightmarish matchup of Michael Bisping against middleweight champion Anderson Silva?
2: Well, here's the thing: Uh, as listeners of this podcast will know, because I read this quote from an interview I did with Michael Bisping out, I think last week where he was talking about how he believes that beating Brian Stan would totally put him in line for a title shot there. And he was saying how everyone thinks that they got to take Anderson Silva down. I'm not afraid to stand with Anderson Silva. I'm, I'll am stand there and I'll beat him. And the way I'm going to go out there and finish Brian Stan uh, will prove it. And Michael Bisping even told me at one point in that interview that uh, he was going to act as if he was going to get screwed if he went to the judges, the way he f- still feels he got screwed against Chael Sonnen. So he was going to act with, with Brian Stan as if... Anything other than a finish, he was going to get screwed and he was going to lose. Didn't fight that way, no. A. B, if you're telling me that, hey, I'm not afraid to stand with Anderson Silva, and then the way you you have to beat Brian Stan is by takedowns and top control, uh, those two things don't match up. You know, if, if you don't want to stand there with Brian Stan, who you know, good striker who could hit you really hard and, and, and put you in trouble there and did get Michael Bisping in trouble at at least one point, then I really don't think you want to stand with Anderson Silva. No, it's, heavens it, no. It, so it's really tough to make that point after this fight. And especially because it was like, you know, Michael Bisping did enough to win the decision. I don't think there's any argument there. But at the same time, I don't think anybody is looking at that fight and being like, next title shot has to go to Michael Bisping. I mean, you can give him the title shot after that. You It would be justifiable. But I don't think anybody is like, Okay, all future plans are off. Michael Bisping, Anderson Silva is the fight that has to happen next. He did not make that case that forcefully.
1: No, but I'll tell you what he did is that he made me feel like we can only stave off like putting him in the discussion for number one contendership for so long, which I feel like we've done with him for a really long time. I feel like for a long time he's been viewed as a guy who beat up a bunch of Jason days, you know, and like never, never really like established himself as, as a top contender. I feel like those days are coming to an end and a way, in a way it makes me feel like the Chris Weidman, Tim Boach fight, which I guess is scheduled uh, seems (laughs) superfluous. Like it makes me really pumped about it. Well, it just seems like, isn't the fight to make, Chris Weidman against uh, Michael Bisping, yes. and then the winner of that is the number one contender. I, I totally agree. And not that I want to get into a discussion about too many shows, but like <laughs> when you're when you're scheduling these guys, you know, so fast, and, and why not just wait to see how this fight turned out, and then book, you know, Bisping or Stan against one of the one of those guys. I don't I don't understand it. I don't know what you're going to get
2: out of Chris Weidman versus Tim Boach. Me neither. And I also think that if you do book Chris Weidman versus Michael Bisping, I think that's a bad night for Michael Bisping. You know, I I think, and again, I think that fight would really have everything you want out of it because, and this is one of the things I think the UFC has been good about and maybe is starting to stray from with too many shows is, you know, back in the uh, Gabriel Gonzaga, Mirko Krokop era, they seemed to learn that don't book these fights where you clearly just want one guy to win uh, in order to bolster his claim at a title shot. Book a fight where... It's a good fight, and whoever wins, that's the guy you can go with. Yeah, Chris Weidman and Michael Bisping, that is that fight. Weidman, Tim Boach is not. I mean, imagine Tim Boach manages to do the, the Yushin Okami thing that he did where he's totally losing right up until he's not, and then he wins it. it it's still good, not like the UFC is going to be like, all right, now we're in the Tim Boach business. Tim Boats versus and Silva, that's the one that's going to fill, you know, Cowboy Stadium or something. Like, yeah, th- that's not what they want to see happen there, and everybody knows it. So why not wait until you can book a fight like the, the you know, Weidman-Bisping fight where, hey, may the best man win, and that's the guy who who will go with. And there will be no arguments about it afterwards. So, yeah, that does seem like a little bit of a consequence of too many shows. you got to fill up these fight cards somehow, uh, and that seems like the easiest way to do it.
1: Let's do Are You Fucking Kidding Me before we get out of here. Okay. Uh, well,
2: by out of here, you mean into the third round? Yeah. Okay.
1: Heading into the third round.
2: We don't want to give people the wrong ideas, all I'm saying. No,
1: we're not cutting this short. If anything, we're going to go long, like we always <laughs> Fuck do. all of you. Uh, the Probably the most self-explanatory segment on the show, Are You Fucking Kidding Me? I think you'll figure it out if you haven't heard it before. Um, ben, this week, my Are You Fucking Kidding Me comes because I actually watched a couple of episodes of the show Fight Factory. Uh, which I don't know if you've heard about it. I've
2: I've definitely heard about it. The AKA show, right? Yeah, the
1: AKA show. And I I have to say, I was pleasantly surprised that it actually turned out to be a pretty damn good show. As an aside, a show that I think more clearly demonstrates what I would like to see with them do with The Ultimate Fighter than just continue to make the same show over and over again. But I have to say, one individual stood out with his actions. Oh, boy. Uh, And that individual was Josh Koscheck. Surprise,
2: surprise. I have
1: to do my, are you fucking kidding me about Josh Koscheck this week? And not necessarily even in a bad way, but just in a, holy shit, you blew my fucking mind kind of a way. (laughs) And for three reasons. Wow, three reasons?
2: Yeah. Yeah. First reason. Wait, let me get comfortable. Hold on.
1: First reason at one point during the show, Josh Koscheck has to go to a meeting with Dwayne Zinken, who's the CEO of Zinken Entertainment, which is the management group that manages most of the guys from AKA and apparently still manages Koscheck, even though he left AKA. So how does Josh Kosciak get to the meeting with Dwayne Zinken? Well, obviously he walks out the back door of his house and he drives his boat there. <laughs> no fucking shit. He drives his boat there where Dwayne Zinken, wink, wink, nudge, nudge reality show producers, just happens to be out on his dock, quote unquote, fishing, waiting for <laughs> Josh Kosciak to show up, which was awesome. Second thing, later in that same episode, Josh Kosciak has to go to his much awaited showdown with AKA Trainer javier mendez so how does he get there how obviously he goes to the airport and he flies himself in his own plane as in he's the pilot
2: (laughs) wait you're saying he doesn't have a plane in his backyard because that's kind of lame
1: he gets to the park (laughs) this is the third thing he gets to this park where they're going to have the showdown uh with javier mendez before he goes out to like to, like, have this face-to-face with Javier Mendez, he whips out a set of note cards where he's clearly got everything that he wants to tell Javier Mendez written on these note cards, and he reviews it before he get, goes out there.
2: Well, that's, impre- that's the most impressive thing I've heard, actually.
1: So I have to say, are you fucking kidding me with this James Bond shit,
2: <laughs> Josh Koscheck? That was awesome. Well, that's... That's a completely different kind of, are you fucking kidding me? From now, like my, my, uh, esteem for Josh Koschek just went up. He's like fucking Sir Walter Raleigh out this bitch. Yeah. He's on some notorious B.I.G. shit taking a boat to his meeting
1: with his fucking note cards. Yeah. It was awesome. It was what awesome. What the hell? And, and just to speak to your point, I feel like I can do whatever I want with, are you
2: fucking kidding me? It's a versatile segment. Well, now, now you, you have blown my mind with that, but okay. My, are you fucking kidding me? Is just going to go old school. Uh, where I basically point at someone and say, "Are you fucking kidding me?" Uh, because Dana White, when asked about you know some of the way the uh, the TV shit is going with the Ultimate Fighter on FX, all that kind of stuff, uh, and he blamed some negative leaks on Spike TV when he was asked about stuff uh, at following the UFC 152 post fight press conference, and he said of Spike TV, who Until very recently, as you'll recall, the UFC was just fucking bosom buddies with. This is his quote about Spike TV. Quote, These guys don't have a fucking program on that show to save their life. It's the worst channel in the history of the world. Nothing they do on that channel works. First of all, worst channel in the history of the world? Surely Dana White did not watch the IFL's run on my network TV. Uh, which yours truly helped to try and save at various points in my NFL employment. Also, shit's on Fuel TV, which, from what I understand, before it had the UFC, was just like dudes breaking their ankles on skateboards. And we're going to call Spike TV the worst channel in the history of the world after years of telling us how awesome it was? I mean, I know FX got the movies, but are you fucking kidding me, Dana White? Clearly he's never seen Mancers. Or I mean, a thousand ways to die. He's for never, instance, he's never can seen you be can you be suffocated by boobs while in a hot tub and getting electrocuted, Chad? I don't know. Let's watch Mansers and a thousand ways to die, and I'm pretty sure in that hour the question will be answered. He's never seen the hit TV show Jail. What about Deadliest Warrior? Anyway,
1: that's round two, ladies and gentlemen. We already are way over time, so we're gonna go ahead and get started with round three right now.
0: Three.
1: Well, Ben, the UFC on Fuel TV 5 still lives, so we will all get to watch the main event of Stefan Struve taking on Stepe Miosic from England this weekend. But alas, Strike Force, we found out via late night email from the good people at the Strike Force PR department has been canceled following a injury to lightweight champion Gilbert Melendez. Now, Ben, isn't this some shit that should only happen on the independent circuit? Shouldn't one guy getting injured only take place at at Anarchy Fights 52 or Casino Cage Wars 24? And in your mind, does this completely Take away any shred or semblance of uh, a way that, that Strike Force could continue to insist that it is some sort of major promotion.
2: Well, yeah. I mean, we already knew that Strike Force was not a major promotion, and that, I mean, I don't think anybody's sitting here going, well, five years from now, Strike Force is still going to be around. We know that's not true. And this just hammered home the point. I think it's just really sad for all the people who are stuck in Strike Force right now that all those people who, who are training for these fights. because It's not like what the fighters are going like, well, I'm only in strike force. So fuck it. I won't train that hard and I'll still keep my part-time job at home Depot and everything will be fine. Like, no, they're acting as if they're professional fighters and why the hell wouldn't they? And then some shit like this happens where the, the one of the guys in the main event gets hurt. No real attempt to save the show or find a new main event. I mean, Josh Thompson said that he offered his services, uh, Nothing really like that goes on that just say, well, screw it. We're done. Yeah. We're just going to cancel this one altogether. Um, because Showtime just says, Ah, well, we'd rather run you know, Dexter reruns or some shit than uh, you know, run Real Steel again uh, than try to go on with this show. I mean, it's completely like, absurd at that point to, to even claim that you're a serious promotion.
1: It brings up to me the idea, not only this, but the previous cancellation of UFC 151. Why do the fighters continue to have to carry the water in terms of lost wages. And in the terms of UFC 151 public scrutiny, you know, why is it that when people get injured and fights fall through, that we have this expectation that fighters ought to, you know, quote unquote, step up or suck it up and fight whoever on whatever notice. But it doesn't really seem like we have that or anything approaching that kind of expectation on promoters, right? Like, why can't we as an MMA industry, put it out there that hey, you know, promoter or television executive, you planned this show that only had one sellable fight on it. Oh, a, a guy got injured and so it fell through? Uh, suck it up. Step yeah. up and still put the show on, even though you're probably not going to make as much money as you did you know, when you thought you had a complete card on your right. hands.
2: And not to mention that uh, when you put that kind of show together uh, and when you tell all these people, I mean, for fighters... The work is not just showing up on fight night and fighting. No, that's the easy part. The, the, the work is like eight weeks beforehand when you're training. So we're asking those guys to do all that work. And then as soon as the promoter does some kind of risk-reward analysis, kind of as you said, and decides, I don't know, maybe we'll just say screw it. Then, hey, fine. You know, Everybody's just shit out of luck there for trusting you. That was their big mistake, is that they took you at your word when you said there was going to be a show tonight and that they were going to get paid for fighting. I mean, that's that's a completely bullshit way to live, a bullshit way to ask professional athletes to live. It's like we can't simultaneously say we want this to be the biggest sport in the world, the way Dana White says it is. We want this to, to be, you know, a, a serious, legitimate, mainstream sport that, uh, you know— Dr. Jared Gonzalez can be proud to tell his (laughs) friends that he is a fan of. And then at the same time, do shit like, but then we lost one guy. And we said, you know what? Forget it. One guy. We lost one guy. And if you know anything as an MMA fan or as anyone who is following MMA in the last year, you know that the odds that you were going to lose one guy off a fight card are pretty fucking good. You should know that this is not only a possibility, but a goddamn likelihood. Yeah.
1: I don't want to make any, you know, radical statements. Yes, but it, you do. It's almost as if we would be better off planning these fight cards with two or three marketable car fights <laughs> on them instead of just one. And in fact, it almost seems as if the number of shows you do... Should be linked to the number of marketable attractions you have available for that fight card.
2: Well, that's just, that's crazy talk, and I think everybody knows it. Here's the thing that I wonder though, especially given Strike Force's current situation, that we're, we're kind of waiting it out at this point, right? Like, the people who are stuck in Strike Force are just kind of like, shit, you know, like, how much longer is this going to go on until, like, you know, there's no more Strike Force and there's no more deal with Showtime and I can get out of here and get to the UFC? Gilbert Melendez has got to be somebody who's really thinking that. Uh, because he is somebody who definitely should be in the UFC, and it's only because he's stuck there. Now, one of the things I wondered when I heard that Gilbert Melendez was hurt and that was out of this fight was, how hurt is he? I mean, is he so hurt that if it had been a UFC fight, that he would have gone on? Is he, is he just hurt enough that where he thought, well, shit, what am I going to risk for strike force? Which I know probably won't be around, and which, you know, there's... All the fights left for him in Force are kind of no-win fights because he's expected to win them all. He's expected to beat a guy like Pat Healy, who is an awesome dude. But, I mean, Gilbert Melendez is expect, expected to beat him. And then this quote. This is from Gilbert Melendez uh, talking to Ariel Helwani on a show. I'm not sure the name of it. I believe it's called the MMA Fortnite. I don't know. It seems to go on for a really long time. But this is a quote from his appearance on that show today. I assume the show is still going on as you listen to this, even if you're listening to it on, like, Friday Uh, The quote: I can tough anything out. If I had a broken leg, I'd tough it out. For my family, for my daughter, I'd do it in a heartbeat. That's not what it came down to. It came down to what is good for me, what is good for my career. I can let my ego take over, like maybe in my younger years, but it's a business now, and I had to treat it like a business. I could have gone out there and fought with one arm. By the way, he he had a separated shoulder from what he said. Uh, But it's not the best choice for my career, and I don't think Pat wants to win like that. I think most fighters in my situation would understand. Now, that's not him saying, like, well, I wasn't really hurt, but I was going to take, you know, take the way out. That's not what he's saying there. He's saying, you know, he separated his shoulder. It was a legitimate injury and that he couldn't really fight, um, you know, unless it was a situation where he had to go out there and take an ass-kicking to keep the lights on. But at the same time, how can you not wonder about it? Like, you're asking these guys to put up normal fighter suffering and sacrifice and all that shit, but you're not giving them the normal fighter stuff back. And that's true not only for Gilbert Melendez, but for everybody else on the Strikeforce card who just got told, uh, you know what, you're not worth it. We don't think people will still show up to see you. We don't think it's worth showing on TV. So uh, we're not going to do it. We don't care how much you suffered. We're, we're asking something for those people that we are not giving back in response. Uh, and, I mean, that to me is the best proof of all that we need to just end this bullshit force charade.
1: Yeah, no, we, we, we absolutely... We absolutely need to pull the plug. I think it's way past time. Uh, let's talk a little bit before we get out of here uh, <laughs> about the fight that is happening: um, Stefan Struve and and Stepe Miosic. Do you say Miosic or Miosic?
2: Does it matter? Miosic. I think when you got a name that's as hard to pronounce as that, I think he's happy if you even get close. All right, Stepe Miosic uh,
1: in sort of like a mid-range, mid-level young guns heavyweight bout. Uh, I had the opportunity to talk to Stefan Struve uh, last month for, for a story that's out on newsstands right now.
2: That's your guy, in, right?
1: In, Uf- in UFC magazine, yeah. Uh, people think you write a story about the guy, and that means that you are the president of his fan club?
2: Him and Tim Boats, those are your guys.
1: Yeah. Here's the thing, though. I was actually like a little bit impressed with Stefan Struve, and it, and it kind of reinforced to me that one of the strengths of this sport is that most of the guys turn out to be kind of surprisingly likable and smart. Uh, I, I don't know if he has the physical skills to be like UFC heavyweight champion, but at the same time, the guy is still so young, I feel like he still has some potential to grow. And just because he's been in the UFC for so long, since I think 2009, I think he's had 11 fights in the octagon, uh, we, we tend to view him as a known commodity. But the truth is the dude's only 24 years old. So I guess my question for you would be, can you buy either of these guys, like, making a run into the top contendership of the heavyweight division?
2: Sure. Sure I can. And I think that uh, when you look at this card, for a free card on cable TV on a Saturday afternoon, I think it's surprisingly good. I know our our British listeners are going to complain that they never get the, the big fights anymore that and yeah if you're buying a ticket for this one and it's like the only time in 2012 that the usc is even going to come to the uk i can understand you being a little dissatisfied with it but i look at this card you got Stefan struve stipe Miosic, uh or miocic uh <laughs> you got dan hardy amir sadala uh john hathaway john mcguire's on there brad pickett uh fighting Yves jawin uh Paul Sass going to do his Sass angle thing against uh, Matt Wyman. And then Che Mills versus Dwayne Ludwig. I mean, for, for those of us watching it in the middle of the afternoon on cable TV, trying to decide whether to watch this or the Montana Grizzlies football game against these from Washington on Saturday afternoon, pretty good card, I think.
1: Yeah, I think it's a good card, too. And I I, I, I do like the main event. I think it's interesting. I honestly have no idea who's going to win. Yeah, no, that's, that's what, one of the interesting things about it yeah but uh i'm willing to watch it i think it's and i think that like this is kind of a good example of how to do these like fx shows or how to do these fuel shows like you don't you don't feel like you need to put huge draws on there but at the same time like give us guys that we are at least familiar with in passing and in the case of stipe miocic or miocic uh Intrigued by, you know, a guy that we've seen a couple of times, this guy who's got a couple of wins, and the question is, like, hey, how far can this kid go? I feel like he and Stefan Struve, in a way, are the ultimate perfect guys to have
2: on these free TV shows. Unless you're one of the people buying a ticket, because I think that is the thing. And you can do this in some markets, and you, you maybe can't do it in the UK anymore um, because they're on your gimmick. But it's like when the UFC on Fuel was in Stockholm. And it had Alexander Gustafsson at the top of the card. And I was at that one, and people locally were calling it UFC Sweden. And they were fucking stoked about it. It was huge there. The UFC had never been there. Um, and so they were more than happy to, to snatch up those tickets to pay sometimes two or three times face value for a, from a scalper. Uh, To go in there and watch Alexander Gustafsson, a couple other Swedes, uh, for a card that back home was considered cable TV quality. I don't know if you can do that anymore with the Brits. Especially you don't have Michael Bisping on the card. You go in there and you tell them uh, you're going to see, you know, the Dutchman Stefan Struve against uh, American Croatian heritage Steep A M. Let's say, Uh, and then a bunch of other British dudes who will fill out the card. It's a little bit of a tougher sell, so we can understand how like you do that too much and the other people the other markets that you're using to to do that are like hey wait a minute you're never going to give us the good stuff are you like we're we're always just going to be the fuel tv cable tv people aren't we uh and i can understand them being a little upset with that yeah
1: Uh, As much as the UFC, at least a couple years ago, tried to make a big deal out of its international expansion, though television is really the business they're in. Like they don't, you know, they will stock the local cards with talent to try to get people to come out to watch them, but it's all about ratings and pay-per-view buys as as far as they're concerned. Before we wrap up, let's do Just Saying Stuff. Uh, this is the part of the show where Ben and I will both make statements that we are then not asked to support or defend or follow up in any way because at the end of the day, we're just two guys in a room saying stuff. Ben, why don't you go first?
2: I'm going to keep my Just Saying Stuff real short and simple because I feel like we've, we've gone pretty long here. Uh, I'm just saying, if losing Gilbert Melendez makes you pull the plug on an event entirely – Quit. Fuck you. Quit. Quit and show Nurse Jackie reruns if that's what you think you'd rather do because you lost one fighter and that fighter was Gilbert Melendez. If you feel like you lost that awesome drawing power and now it's not even worth showing up for, just fucking quit. Wow. I get feel the passion in your voice on that it's bullshit to ask these people to go through a full training camp and to show up ready to fight and then you lose one fighter to injury which happens all the time and you just decide you're not going to do it and they're all shit out of luck that is a bullshit thing to do fans should be outraged we should be outraged you shouldn't treat fighters like that they're professional goddamn athletes i agree with you you're just saying i'm just i'm just
1: saying chad i'm just saying hollywood if you think i'm gonna reach into my pocket and pull out some of my hard-earned money in a recession to go see <laughs> Kevin James's MMA movie, you must be out of your goddamn mind. And MMA fans, I feel strongly about this, man. We need to take a stand at some point to tell both these promoters and these Hollywood phonies,
2: oh no, that <laughs> just because
1: just because you put the cage in your movie and you get uh, Christoph Shosinski and Boss Rutan and Mark Delagrati to do some cameos Mayhem we're, Miller. we're not just going to go watch whatever it's time for us to take a stand we need quality MMA related entertainment out there
2: or as one of my favorite Twitter buddies at Jeff the uh, Jeff referred to this movie Paul Blart MMA fighter
1: <laughs> I'm just saying I am just saying. Anyway, that's the show for this week. You've been listening to the Co Main Event Podcast. I'm Chad Dundas from ESPN.com. That's Ben Folks from USA Today and MMAJunkie.com. We went way over time. Maybe this will satisfy the people that keep saying we should do the show like three times a week. <laughs> uh, but but for this week, we're done. That's it. We're out. How much money would it take to get you to go see Here Comes the Boom
2: in the theater? In the theater. Well, if you if you gave me twenty dollars out of your wallet right now. Okay, I don't have that. And I don't know if you notice that I have a child. <laughs> and um, if I were drunk. I would go. Yeah, I would go. Twenty dollars and I'm drunk. Boom. You're easily bought, I guess. That's all I'm